you have noticed a beautiful floral arrangement on your right and my left. It is presented by John Harl family in honor of his mother, Kathleen Harl, who along with her husband and family were wonderful supporters of this congregation for many, many years. Tomorrow would have been her 100th birthday and we're happy to honor the memory of Kathleen and her contribution. Our scripture passage this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John. You are welcome, if you may, to follow as I read. It's a familiar story. Do not let the familiarity lose the tread. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, and as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. I'd like for you to put your thinking cap on, and in reflection, how many of you in years past have attended a church that had dinner on the grounds? May I see your hands? Well, a goodly number of us. Well, you may not know this, but I think this is the first time this all took place. This miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it is the only miracle that Jesus did which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all included in their record. And when you and I look at it, it tells us something about who Jesus is, the situation, and it relates to your life and mine, whether you may think so, though it took place a couple of thousand years ago. So I'd like to suggest five ideas which come out of this passage. There are more than that. But these are that which we shall focus this morning, 
The first one's this. We should not be overwhelmed by circumstances for the Lord makes the impossible possible. You've never heard the name Ed Smith. He was a student at University Heights Baptist Church in the years which we served there, which were the years from 63 through 67. Ed came forward one Sunday night and said, Dr. Sherman, the Lord's called me to preach, but there's one difference I might add. Ed didn't say that as I have said it. Ed had a situation that when he became nervous, he stuttered. And so while the congregation sang the invitation, he said, Dr. Sherman, and my heart went out to him and I listened intently and it took him a while, maybe a verse or two to say what he had to say. He said, I believe the Lord has called me to preach. Well, I said, Ed, God bless you. If that's what God has in mind for your life, we're 180% in favor of you. We will do our best as a church to support you. On the way home that night, I turned to Vita and I said, you know, Lord doesn't make any mistakes. However, I don't know how Ed will be able to be a preacher if he has this situation with his speech. And I'm not demeaning him by a ton. I'm just stating facts. Well, he came and asked if the church would license him and ordain him. And we said, we will be happy to. If that's where you feel God has led your life, we're all in favor of it. And so he had to give his testimony before the church. And guess what? He stepped up to the microphone. He said, ladies and gentlemen, just as clearly as I'm speaking or better, God has called me to preach and I'm answering his call and I appreciate the endorsement and support of my congregation, my university church. I about fell off my chair. What the? And then I began to think. You remember how the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, the Lord has chosen you. The word gune means you're about 16 years of age or younger in Greek. And that's the term which the scripture uses. And you recall how in Luke chapter 1, the state they give, give and take and the angel shares what God has in mind for her life that she shall in turn be the mother of the Son of God. It kind of blows your mind when you think of it. She was overwhelmed and then she said, how can this be for I have not been with a man? And do you remember what Gabriel said? It's the theme of St. Thomas Hospital here. With God, nothing is impossible. Vita and I had the opportunity to go to Jamaica in 1954 as summer missionaries along with about 28 other college students. Dr. W.J. Wimpy was the BSU director and he said, Bill, we were the president of the BSU at that year and we were in close relationship throughout the year. And he said, Bill, 
We would like for you to represent Texas for each state was sending two people from New Mexico to Virginia, 30 of us. Well, two weeks later, he comes back and he says, by the way, Bill, there's been a mix up. I went to the state BSU convention and they've already chosen the two from Texas. Well, that's a fine how do you do. And I looked at him and I said, well, gulp, that's okay. And he said, they said, if you can raise the money, you're welcome to go. And I said, well, great, we'd love that. We'd just been married one year. Vita was teaching school for the ripe old rich year annual sum of $2,700 a year in Waco, Texas, okay? And he says, all you need is $800. I picked up my phone last night and asked Google, and Google comes in handy for all of us. I said, Google, what was $800 in 1954 worth in 21, well, whatever the year this is, 22, <laughs> okay? And Google said it would be worth over $8,000. And we had about five weeks to get that equivalent of money in that year. And I sighed and I thought, well, we'd love to have gone to Jamaica and preached and witnessed. So I started sending out letters. I'd been in youth revivals because they asked me to go, not because I was gifted. They asked me to go because I was a former Baylor football player. I knew that. But I had the privilege of serving in a lot of churches, 40-something in the few years we had those youth revivals. And I sent letters to about 20 of those churches and explained the situation. And if you could find it in your heart, we would welcome whatever you wish to give. You want to guess how much money came in in two weeks? $1,240. And you could have pushed me over with a pen. I remember my grandmother was up in years and I'd always want to go see her because I was fearful that she might pass before we got home. So I went bouncing into the farm and there stood by them all with their little speck glasses and her dress to the floor and her hair back in a bun. And I said, Bama, guess what? I told her the story. And then I said, and guess what? We've received over $1,200. And she looked at me and said, why did you doubt God? Didn't you know God would come up through it? I felt about that big. But then I began to think about the fact you and I have vast resources before us. We worship a God who makes the impossible possible. A second idea, Jesus can and will use anyone who is willing. That's you, that's me. I remember so very well how the situation was when we were given the opportunity to go and preach at a country church. I had no background in preaching. I had been in church since before I was born. My grandfather was the pastor of the Poly Baptist Church in which I was saved. And I was thrilled to go out to Malone, Texas You've never heard of Malone, 200 people, 100 white, 100 black, and that was it. 41 in the congregation. 
but that didn't matter. It was an opportunity to share Christ, and I was excited. Yet, I did not feel worthy, and I certainly wasn't capable. And <clears throat> for four years, those people put up with some horrible sermons, <laughs> just to be blunt about it. But they loved us, and we loved them, and God was good. And I recall as the years went by, I reflect back on those people sitting out there praying because they knew their pastor was struggling and drowning up there. You know, it's an amazing thing about preaching. We've been doing it now for 68 years. And I climb in the car to go home. And of course, my wife is the finest person to give observations. And she's very delightful and a wonderful critic. And I mean that positively. <laughs> I know y'all are laughing because y'all have got wives of the same nature, <laughs> indeed, to be honest as such. Sometimes words come, ideas flow. I feel comfortable about the sermon. I climb in the car, start driving off and say, honey, how'd it go today? She says, well, I don't know, it may have been me, but it, it just didn't fly. And all of a sudden, my ego, if I had an ego left, was under the floor. And other days, I would stand in the pulpit and struggle and drown and struggle. And, and I'd climb in the car and I'd say, Lord, please forgive me for that sermon. I didn't say it publicly, but it did in my heart. And I recall I'd say, well, Vita, how'd it go? And I was getting braced. And she said, honey, that's one of the best sermons you've ever preached. And I couldn't believe my eyes. God is willing to use anyone who is willing. Remember, in every heart, there's a throne and there's a cross. When self is on the throne, Christ is on the cross. But when Christ is on the throne of your heart and mind, and we pick up our crosses and follow him, then life clicks. You see, Christ is the one who makes the difference in our lives. You remember how the Old Testament prophets said, Seek ye me and ye shall live? And when we find our way to Christ, it makes all the difference in the world. He sat right up there on the second row about 30 years ago. His name was Tommy Howard. At the back door, he came out. He had on a trench coat. I remember it very well. And I said, you're a new face. He said, yes, he's kind of quiet. And I said, well, fine. My name's Bill Sherman. He said, Tommy Howard. I said, glad you came. Come again. And of course, everybody's backed up and they want to rush out, you know, and get the place to eat so that you can't talk a long time at the back door to any one person. He came back the next Sunday, and the next Sunday he called me, and he said, Preacher, could I come talk to you? I said, Sure. He came to the office, and he told me the story of his life, and things had not gone well. He was one of the finest salesmen at neighbor's trucks years ago, but he had other demons, and in turn he said, can you tell me how I can find the handle? And very briefly, I said, 
Tommy, has anyone ever explained to you in language you can understand how you can become a believing Christian in Jesus Christ? He said, I'm not sure. So I shared as best I could, and then I said, it's up to you. He said, your choice. And he said, that's what I want for my life. And we prayed. He received the Lord. We baptized him in this baptistry. I remember when he came out of the dressing quarters with that robe on, he jumped up and clicked his feet on both sides. He was very athletic. And he said, oh, what a feeling. And you know what? When you become a Christian, you're not going to have everything going your way. You will have cancer. Know about that. You will have injuries. You will have problems. But you have a power within you to cope with the powers that face you and the problems that face you. And that makes all the difference in the world. We were summer missionaries to Jamaica in 1954. We were at Basa. We'd had a Bible school. It was 10 o'clock. I was sitting there listening to the WFAA Dallas, 820, getting the news. And a young man named Vinnie Clementson, he'd been in my group. He was 16 years old. He walked up. This is 1030, 1015 at night. <clears throat> he said, Please, Mom, and Mrs. Johnston, the pastor's wife, jumped out of her chair and shot across the room and says, Mom, you can't come in here. You are an evil mom. I didn't know what was going on. Vinny had been in my class for five days. I'd gotten to know him, and he had been a part of the group, and he took us sea-bothing, as they call swimming down in Jamaica, and we got to be friends. And he said, please, mom, please, mom. She said, no. I said, well, there's no problem. I'll go out and talk to him out there. We went down and sat down by a great big bolter right in front of the Caribbean. Moon was out, wind was blowing. It's about 10, 10, 15, 10, 20 at night. And I looked at Vinston and his eyes and his teeth were so bright white. And I said, Vinny, how can we spend our time? And he says, I've looked in the lives of you students this week, and you have something that I don't have and I want. I've tried all the ways of my friends, and they've led me to no satisfaction. I said, Vinny, has anyone ever explained to you how to become a believing Christian? He said, no, Mon. Everything's Mon in Jamaica, if you've been there. And so I shared with him. The Lord spoke to his heart. He became a Christian. I recall the next Sunday morning, he came forward at the end of the invitation. He stood up and said to the people, made a sign like this, and he says, you all know me, and the heads went up and down like this. He, I didn't know his background. We'd just been there a couple of weeks. And so he says, I'm not the same man that you've seen heretofore. Christ has come into my life, and I'm a different man. Well, the people looked uh, with a, a sconce eye, I'll tell you that. What I didn't know was he was the biggest problem in the town. He would get drunk every weekend. He would get in fights at the bar. He would end up in jail. He had an illegitimate child. He had a woman living with him, not his wife, and his grandmother in turn, turn told him to put her out and he beat her. 
I didn't know any of that. But then Christ came into his life. He sent the woman home. He adopted the child. He in turn rode his bicycle up to Lind Lindstead, Vita, I'll get it right, and to another Bible school we held later. He later became a Baptist preacher, became the president of the Jamaica Baptist Union. He preached in this pulpit, as some of you will remember. He's in glory now. How and why? All because God will use anybody who will let him. Number three, a little is a lot in the hands of the Lord. I've been impressed over the years by the power of one. Several years ago, we stood at Mount Olivet in Jerusalem. It's a burial ground for our Jewish friends. They felt feel highly wonderful if they could be buried on Mount Olivet. And I placed my hand on the sarcophagus of Oscar Schindler. Does that ring a bell? Did you see Schindler's List? As you know, he was a German born in Sudetenland in Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia as it was known then. He became a Nazi because it was beneficial for him business-wise in about 39. He later had a munitions company and made munitions for the Third Reich. But he also had a heart for human beings. And he realized what was happening to the Jews. The word was out, though it was never published, as you know, about Treblinka, Dachau, of which Vita and I have been. We've been to Auschwitz. It wasn't funny. And so he was used by bribing the SS to keep 1,100 Jews from the gas chamber. And he's the only Nazi buried in Jerusalem, as you would understand. The power of one. A fourth idea, only bread from Jesus can satisfy the spiritual hunger of our souls. Many of you are well aware of Augustine of Hippo. He was a profligate growing up. He tried all the ways of his friends. He too had an illegitimate child, Adriodatus. His father disowned him. His mother was a godly woman, and while she was praying for him in Hippo, in a chapel, he went and got on board a boat and went over to Rome, not even telling his mother. He later ended up under the influence of Ambrose in northern Italy. And Ambrose was one of the most powerful preachers of the century. Augustine, as you know, became a believing Christian and one of the great church fathers dying in 430 AD. And he wrote in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. And how true that is. We are all created in God's image. And like the prodigal son, when we're in a far country, which always looks enticing from a distance, but when you get there, it's not what it's cracked up to be. I've talked to people time and time again over the period of seven decades 
who said, oh, it just looks so enticing, the far country, but it's always attractive from a distance. It's not very funny when you get there. And you know how he ended up in the pig pen? And he wised up and says, you know, my father has servants better off than where I am now. I'm going home and I'll tell him. And you recall how it is that he came home and the father was sitting on the front porch and saw him coming. And this is indeed a symbol of the heart of God. He left and ran and picked the boy up and hugged him and said, uh, go get a coat for this young man. Go get sandals for this young man. My son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Let's rejoice and have a party. Only bread from the Jesus Christ can fill the longing of your heart and mine. Finally, our God is a God of superabundance. I can appreciate what Stuttered Kennedy did in his life. He was a British preacher. World War I breaks out in 1914, August, as you know. And he was pastoring there in England. Young men were going to Flanders right out of his church. Many of them didn't come back. And he said, if they're going over there and dying, I'm going with them. So he became a chaplain. And I recall how he went there. He was wounded. He wouldn't carry a sidearm. He was bad lungs from then on because here came the gas and a soldier came up and said, Chappie, I don't have a gas mask. What am I going to do? And he took his off and handed it to him. Can you believe that? And he had breathing problems for the rest of his life. But when he came home, he was impressed so much by so many people that call themselves churchmen who were only half-hearted. And he's the one who wrote, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him to a tree. They drove great spikes through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. But when Jesus came to our town, we merely passed him by. We never heard a hair of him. We simply let him die. It's called indifference. But you know what? Only Christ is the one who can make you and I to become the person that we ought to be. His name was William Ernst Henley. He was a Scot. He had to have a number of operations on his legs. No, in those days, no anesthesia. He became bitter by all the pain He's the one that wrote, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole. I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and fear, Looms but the horror of the grave, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. 
It matters not how straight the gate, how filled with punishment the scrolls. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. It's very powerful poetry, but it's wrong. You're not the captain, nor am I, of our lives if we want to be what we ought to be. For in the Christian life, living is dying. Gaining is giving. Winning is losing. Jesus said, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find out what life is. So the choice comes between you and I concerning what we're going to be. And the master of Galilee, the carpenter, comes down the street again. In every age and every day, he still is building men and women. So we have an opportunity to respond. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, and my, my indeed yoke is light. It's a wonderful thing to know that when we put our lives in his hands, he takes care of us, and we find the handle, and we become winners. Today is the day of the Super Bowl. Is there anybody here that won't watch it? Well, I'm sure there'll be a few. That's fine. But let me tell you about the most unusual play in bowl history. It took place in Pasadena, California in 1929. Georgia Tech was playing the University of California in the Rose Bowl, January 1st, 1929. Now, there happened to be a young man by the name of Roy Regal, who was the center and linebacker on one of those teams. You recall what happened? The play developed and he, in turn, was carrying the ball. He was hit and spun around. And if you've ever been on the football field, as many of us have, you can be hit to the point where you will lose what whatever a handle you had for a second or so. He got confused and when he spun out of the pile, he saw green and he took off like a wild, you name it. And he ran and ran and ran. But the problem was he was running the wrong way. And the center on the team named Benny Lum was running behind him saying, Roy, Roy, pitch me the ball, pitch me the ball. <laughs> and later Regal said, they asked me, me why I didn't pitch him the ball. He says, heck, I wanted to make the touchdown. Well, Benny caught him and tackled him inside their own 10. And it was then fourth down and 60 yards to go. How's that for a first down? Well, guess what? They lined up to kick and the kick was blocked. And that safety in turn, cost them the ball game because somebody ran the wrong way. I have a question. Are any of us in our lives running the wrong way? 
Well, I would encourage you to turn and listen to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I want to close with an illustration which I used in this pulpit not long ago. Peter and I attended Seventh and James Baptist Church after we married. We, I was still in school and she was teaching school in 1953. Charles Welburn was our pastor, an outstanding preacher. He was given an opportunity to go to Union Seminary that summer for a short course. While there, since he was speaking on the Baptist Hour, Baptist in New York heard that he was there, they invited him to preach. And so the instructions came, as Charles told us from the pulpit, over the telephone. Go down to such and such a street, go upstairs, catch plane, tra uh, train number so-and-so, and it'll take you across the East River into Queens, into where our church is, and get off at station number 24. Charles was a Gladewater, Texas boy. He had never been to New York before. He was excited. It was a warm day. He said, I took my coat over my shoulders, climbed up the steps, waited for the train, the number appropriate, climbed on, and he said, I was the only one but the motorman on the plane, train. Well, he said, I looked down to the battery. I looked up to upstate, you know, and so he said, I was excited. Over there was Brooklyn as such. And uh, well, here's Brooklyn, excuse me, that's Queens. And he said, I looked over there and he said, all of a sudden I dawned on me, we had crossed the East River and we were going through a cemetery. And it was the largest one I'd ever seen. As far as I could see, there were markers. And he said, about that time, the motorman who had been reading the paper and looking occasionally at this track, cupped his hand and said, next stop, Calvary Cemetery. The train stops at Calvary on Sunday only by request. Is there anybody here for Calvary? And Charles said, that spoke to my heart. That's what I was preaching on. And when they came to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors on the one side and the left. And as we come to this invitation time, the next stop for those of you who need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ is Calvary. And we pray that you'll be willing to do what the Holy Spirit would lead us to do. May we pray. Our Father, how we thank you for the privilege of declaring the good news of the gospel. And we're happy that Jesus, the miracle worker, still works miracles. And he does it every day to those who will believe. So we place this service in your hands. Ethan will be standing at the front. And in turn, if anyone has a commitment to make to Jesus Christ as we sing, May they so respond in this time of invitation. In the strong name we pray, amen. May we stand and join in singing because he lives. And as we sing, you make the decision that the Lord lays upon your heart.